and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 5, A Son of Quraysh. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another episode of the History of Islam podcast. Last episode, we followed Qusay's conquest of Mecca and we left him on his first steps towards consolidating his victory. For any state to not only be successful but also to function on the most basic level, it needs to possess five elements which are vital to its existence. Number one, it needs citizens who have a sense of belonging to the state and therefore a loyalty towards it. Number two, it needs land for those citizens to live on and to work on. And number three, it needs some sort of clear power structure, some kind of hierarchy must exist so that the people, the citizens that live within the state know who is in charge, who's boss, who they can turn to in times of need and uncertainty. Number four, it needs money, a source of income so it can finance itself and the activities that it wants to pursue. And number five, it needs a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Now we're going to look at each one of these in a bit more detail and see how Qusay managed to check off these items off his list to establish his state in Mecca. Now, number one we said was citizens, and we can check off number one because in addition to the existing population of Mecca, Qusay had his kinsmen with him who had sworn allegiance to him and he settled them down in Mecca. Number two, land. Another check. Mecca was now within his possession, so he had land. And also, just to expand a little bit here, having land that you can call your own, land that you have worked hard towards gaining, aids the loyalty element that the citizens have and one problem with trying to build a state with nomads in Arabia is that nomads due to their lifestyle had no attachment to any particular piece of land so it was easy for them to abandon it when the going got tough when things were not going the way they wanted it and Qusay had addressed this issue by ordering his nomadic followers to abandon their nomadic lifestyle and to build homes and settle down in Mecca. And another thing that he had going really well for him was that Mecca to these people wasn't just any old valley. It was the land of the holy sanctuary and they possessed it. And what this does is that it gives a greater sense of pride. So they were more willing to settle there and they will be more prepared to protect it. Number three on our list was the power structure. And as we mentioned in the past episode, Qusay had absolute authority. So everyone knew who was boss. So that's another check. So now Qusay has three out of five done on the list. And all he has left are the final two, money and the monopoly. And to run anything in life, you need cash, you need money. So Qusay had to find a way to basically tax his citizens, but in a covert way. Because as you may remember from the previous episodes, for a proud and fiercely independent people, taxation for the Arabs, particularly the nomadic of them, was a bit of a taboo, a form of humiliation even. So Qusay had to find a way to wrap it up and package it so that he doesn't destroy what he had just gained. A bit like when Octavian, Julius Caesar's nephew, finally managed to defeat all his enemies and the Roman Empire in its entirety was undisputedly his, firmly within his grasp. Even then, as a last man standing, he couldn't or didn't name himself a king or an emperor because of the great taboo that the position of a sole ruler or a king was to the citizens of the Roman Republic at that time. And what he did and what he had to do really was to paint his position of what was really his absolute authority, 
um, because he had no one in his way. He could do whatever he pleased. But he had to paint this position of absolute authority that the people hated into a pretty picture so that they accepted it. And what he did is, as you may or may not know, he made himself merely princeps civiatis, first citizen. But a citizen like everyone else, except that in reality, he wasn't. But the reality didn't matter as long as the illusion was accepted by the people. Anyway, back to Arabia. One of the ways that the keepers of the sanctuary in Mecca made money was through their monopoly on the sale of food and water during the pilgrimage season. And you can only imagine how lucrative this was. And in this tradition of pilgrimage, Qusay managed to find a way to introduce his tax. Now, I'm going to challenge you to see if you can guess how he managed to do it. So, if you want to take a second to think about it, go ahead and pause this now. Okay, so the way Qusay managed to paint his pretty picture was by evoking those feelings of pride and honor that the Arabs had and the feelings that we always keep coming back to as defining characteristics of the Arabs as a people. Quraysh were now a people of great prestige because of their possession of the Kaaba. They were keepers of the sanctuary and servants of the pilgrims that flocked to the Kaaba. Qusay convinced them that it was their duty, their responsibility to make sure that no pilgrim would ever go hungry or, or thirsty as long as they were in charge. The best of the Arabs, as we mentioned, was the most hospitable of them. And these were feelings that already existed within the Arab persona. It was extremely dishonorable to the highest degree to mistreat your guest. And Qusay made it so that the pilgrims became not only the guests of God, but also the guests of Quraysh as keepers of the sanctuary. So it was their responsibility to be hospitable to the pilgrims and to make sure those of them who were, to put it bluntly, poor, wouldn't be hungry or thirsty. And naturally, when a monopoly is present, we can assume that prices would be pretty high. So what Qusay did was that he set up an institution called the Rifada. And the Rifada was a contribution required from everyone in order to pay for this very generous treatment of the pilgrims who required it. However, to put it simply, this was a tax paid directly to Qusay. The people riled up by all this talk of responsibility and honor agreed. So now Qusay had checked off number four. He now had a stream of income coming directly from his citizens, which he could use to finance anything he wanted. The final item on our list was having a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. And in order to move away from the natural state of anarchy and towards having a centralized state, the central authority must be the only polity that can use violence legitimately. It is almost impossible to stop people from using violence completely. And even today, with all the technology and all the resources that we have at our fingertips, we still have things like murders on a daily basis. However, the difference between a murder on the streets and a, a soldier going and killing someone is that a murder on the streets is considered to be unlawful and illegitimate by all. Whereas the murder committed by the soldier, which is sanctioned by the state, isn't. This fifth item on our list, the monopoly on legitimate use of violence, will prove to be the most difficult obstacle in the environs of Arabia. Tribal security, as we went over slightly in the previous episodes, relied on the quid pro quo policy, tit for tat, an eye for an eye. 
The imminent threat of violent retaliation from the whole group, the whole tribe, if any one of them is harmed, is what essentially kept the tribe strong and it is what made sure that no member of that tribe would be harmed. If Qusay had managed to end this tribal attitude and end the policy of tribal retaliation, then it would have been groundbreaking as it had never happened before in Arabia. However, being the savvy politician that he was, he came up with what was essentially a sort of compromise. If you remember from the last episode, we said that he took Darun Nedwa as his residence. After the conquest and the settlement of Mecca, the tribe of Quraysh at the command of Qusay conducted all their affairs in Darun Nedwa. This made the house of Qusay the nucleus of Mecca and the nucleus of the tribe of Quraysh. And therefore, it concentrated more power into the owner of the house's hands, into Qusay's hands. And one of the affairs that Qusay ordered to be conducted in Darun Nedwa and Darun Nedwa only was the tying of the standard of war when fighting the people outside of Quraysh. So war could only be declared after Qusay okays it. And this served to not only cement Qusay's position at the top, because at the end of the day, power is what rules physical power, nothing else, not even, not even wealth. You can use wealth to buy power, but it is power that rules. It also resulted in Quraysh presenting a united front towards external threats. And this was a very powerful capacity to possess in a time when society was played with things like internal strife and infighting. So that you can see how important this step was, I'll give you a parallel. Say the United States, for example. If every state could declare war independently on their own, then over time, the USA the United States of America would dissolve and fragment and it would no longer be a union. Also, the power to independently declare war would work both ways. So what this means is that if a state could independently declare war, then it could also independently opt out of defending another member of the union. So to put this into a hypothetical scenario for you, uh, for example, if Mexico tried to invade Texas and the United States didn't present a coordinated and united front, then the USA would be much weaker because it would no longer be a union of states under a central authority. Rather, it would be a bunch of separated authorities doing as they pleased, pursuing their own agendas. So following this scenario of Mexico invading Texas, let's say, for example, the state of New York. If the state of New York had the power to declare uh, war independently, then they might think... Why do I need to declare war on Mexico? I don't need to protect Texas. What does Texas do for me? I'm not going to waste my money and my precious resources just to send my people south to protect a state that offers me nothing, that gives me nothing. So if there's nothing in it for me, why should I do it? So what this would mean is that the United Front is shattered and the USA will be more vulnerable to an external threat. So going back to Quraysh, the parallel is that Quraysh would be the USA, Qusay, the leader, would be the president and Congress because only Congress has the power to declare war. And the clans within the tribe of Quraysh would be the states of the USA. So by introducing some sort of a process into the act of declaring war on an external tribe, it would mean that later on that anyone that didn't adhere to this process, then their declaration would be considered illegitimate by other people and it wouldn't be followed. And also, 
by making the process one by which you have to go to Daran Nadwa physically and actually discuss it with other members of the tribe or the leading authority of the tribe, which was Qusay at the time, then there is more of an opportunity to coordinate efforts. Because if you've already started discussing it, it is then a much easier step to transition into beginning to discuss things like tactics or how you are actually going to carry out that operation, how you are going to actually conduct that war. And this would result into a more effective and more coordinated effort that is more likely to be successful than if you just, in a spout of anger for example, just set out and went off to kill people. The institutions that Qusay set out, the institutions that he created, became later on almost like the gospel for Quraysh and they followed by his tradition religiously except in one thing succession when Qusay grew older and as one early reporter says his bones grew weak he looked to his sons and just to recap we know that he had at least four sons and two daughters I say at least because the Arabs had a tendency to not list children that didn't make it into adulthood and also, six children seems to be a bit on the low side. His four sons were named Abdul Dar, Abdul Manaf, Abdul Uzza, and Abd. Now, you don't need to know these names per se because later on they're not really going to become that relevant to our story, but they're worth mentioning. The eldest of the four was Abdul Dar, and this was, by the way, almost certainly not his real name, but rather a nickname, similar to how Qusay's real name was Zayd. And the reasons why I believe that it's a nickname will become clearer later on. I just don't want to spoil anything just for now. Okay, so Qusay picked out the eldest of them, Abdul Dar, to become his successor. And he gave him all his privileges and powers, then he retired. There is a passage from At-Tabari's history about this succession and although it probably isn't a direct quote, so not the, the actual words that Qusay said to his sons, even At-Tabari himself notes فِيمَا يَزْعُمُونَ which can be basically translated to this is what they claim. What we can assume however is that what he said to his son was something to the effect of the quote that At-Tabari found. And it is worth including in our history podcast because what it will do is give you more of an idea of the powers and privileges that Qusay actually had to give. So what Qusay supposedly says as he hands over the reins to power, he tells his son, no man can enter the Kaaba until you are the one that opens it. And no man from Quraysh can tie a standard to war until you tie it for them with your own hands. And no man in Mecca can drink water unless you are the one that poured it. And no man can eat any food during the pilgrimage season unless that food is from your food. And the tribe of Quraysh cannot conduct their affairs unless they are conducted in your house. And saying this, he gave him his house Darun Nadwa and all the other rights that he mentioned. The keys to the Kaaba, the proceeds from the Rifada, which was that tax that we mentioned, the right of feeding the pilgrims, the right of watering the pilgrims, and then with all the big five responsibilities off his back, Osai retired. Handing over power when you are still alive 
for me is always the best option. For example, when you look at the Romans and the era of the five good emperors, they all had that successor that they had nominated and they had already picked and sort of trained before they were dead. So the heir was always prepared for the tasks that he had coming up ahead of him. And by giving his powers over to his son while he was still alive, it helped to cement his son's legitimacy as ruler. And it made sure that the people didn't disobey him because Qusay's word was the law and he was very loved by his people. As I said in the last episode, there are no instances of his orders not being carried out or there being dissent to anything that he commanded. So it was a total loving loyalty. So by handing over the power while he was still alive, it was seen as an act directly from his hand that they couldn't refuse. So... It was all hunky-dory, as they say, during the reign of Abdu'l-Dar, even though he was considered to be quite a weak ruler, quite a weak man in general, and not really the man that was up to the job. However, the problem started to rise up during the time when Qusay's grandchildren became adults. And this is because by the time of that generation you now have young adults that have never spoken to Qasai, didn't witness Qasai in his prime, basically only remember an old man. Some of them might have never ever seen him, some of them might have been born after he died. So because of this the legacy or the will of Qasai for the succession line to continue from son to father, son uh, sorry father to son, father to son isn't as adhered to by then, even though the institutions that he set out were still followed strictly. With a people as proud as the Arabs and with egos as large as those in Mecca, we find that there are people that end up thinking that they deserve more than what they currently have. They want the responsibilities to be split up. There are five big responsibilities and they were all under the hand of one man and they basically felt that we are sons of Qusay, you are sons of Qusay. So why is it that only Abdu'l-Dar and his offspring get to have the the responsibilities and all the prestige and the wealth and the power that comes with them? Why do they deserve it more than us? They don't. So you can kind of see where they are coming from. Qusay was given absolute authority or rather he grabbed absolute authority and he was listened to by everyone because they felt he deserved it. He had orchestrated the conquest of Mecca. He was the one, he was Mujammi' Quraysh. He was the one that brought everyone together and lifted them to their new position. So he deserved it. But Abdu'l-Dar, however, he hadn't really done anything independently on his own. And he hadn't done anything that raised him above his brothers. So if he deserves it, then we deserve it as much as he does. So next episode, that is what we're going to be discussing. When everything goes up in flames and the people start fighting amongst themselves over the responsibilities of the sanctuary. And after that, we will enter into the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. Thank you for listening. This episode, as always, will have some footnotes. So if you want to carry on listening to those feel free to do so. Otherwise, see you next Thursday.
You are now listening to the footnotes segment. First of all, I want to wish a Merry Christmas to all of those who actually do celebrate it. And I want to give some thanks. Thanks to those of you who donated this week. It's very helpful and I would encourage more people to do it if they can. I want to give a thanks to Laszlo Montgomery from the History of China podcast for his shout out. And also a special thank you to listener Caleb from North Carolina for his huge help. He has been giving me very helpful reviews every week which really aid me to improve the podcast so if you guys want to help me then do the same and message me after listening to an episode and give me a review your personal thoughts on what you thought was good and i should do more of and what you thought wasn't that good and i should do less of also any good innovative suggestions are welcomed and highly encouraged on the website, there is, in addition to many other useful resources, a glossary page, which is thanks to listener Carl, who suggested it. If there are any Arabic words I've used that you believe deserve to be on the glossary page, then shoot me a message, as usual, on the blog's contact page, and I will be quick to add it onto there. Finally, I have come up with the idea of having some sort of character page as we move further forward in the podcast. Because as we move further forward in the podcast, we will naturally encounter more people and it may get confusing. Hopefully it doesn't and I'll make sure it doesn't. But it is likely due to the fact that the characters, the people in this podcast are going to have Arabic names, which will be for most of you foreign names. And lots of people shy away from Chinese history, for example, because of the foreign names used there. It is slightly harder to relate to. So the character page will essentially have character profiles of the people in the podcast with an appropriate image so if they have been portrayed in a movie or tv show i'll use that and then their name in arabic and english plus a little info on the side of the type that you find in profiles maybe clickable links to their children and their fathers so that you can trace their lineages which is helpful to try and identify uh people in a podcast for example most people in uh in arabic and islamic history will have names that will include their name and their father's name so for example khalid ibn walid so that means khalid son of walid and that's the name that he's known by he's not known just as khalid so tell me what you think of this character page would you support it is this a good idea is it not any suggestions hit me up on historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com using the contact page thank you for listening that is all for now and i'll see you next Thursday. Goodbye.